0: Thank you so much, Pastor Randy. Wonderful prayer to get us ready for our passage today. If you would, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. We'll continue there in our work through this great book, second book in the scriptures. Uh, Parents, if you have children up through fifth grade and would like them to go to some age-specific teaching, that's offered now as well. You can head out to the back patio. Brothers and sisters, the book of Exodus is the, the true history of Israel, from the, the edge way down deep in slavery in Egypt to the very edge of the promised land, from the oppressive slavery under Pharaoh to joyful servanthood under God, from a rather directionless people to a people who possessed the very commandments and laws and direction and presence of God. This book records an enormously significant era of history. And yet it's more than that. It's not just history. Because over and over and over on these pages, we find not only their history, but we find our present. We find things that it teaches us about ourselves. God has graciously provided a mirror on these pages that we might see the wonderful works of God and the wanderings of Israel and see something of our own lives in our own Christianity as we seek together to live the Christian life. Church, you see, once we were slaves to sin, of course. Living in Egypt, if you will, But now, God has rescued us, Jesus has rescued us, setting us free that we might belong to God and serve God. And even now then, we are, in a sense, on our way to the promised land, to heaven, to that place where King Jesus will come and bring with Him a place of perfection in which there'll never be anything wrong ever again. Yet for now, We wander in the wilderness. As we sing sometimes, we're almost home, but we're not quite there yet. As I said last week, we exist today between the song of Moses on the opposite side of the Red Sea and the song of Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15. We exist today wandering, in a sense, in the wilderness. Then how shall we live? Well, Exodus teaches us a lot, teaches us a lot through their history that we might be directed and spoken to in our present. There was a pastor during the terrible reign of Hitler named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he wrote about this. He said this, we too passed through the Red Sea, through the Jordan, across through the desert, across the Jordan, into the promised land. With Israel, we fall into doubt and unbelief. And through punishment and repentance, experience again God's help and faithfulness. All this is not mere revere, but holy, godly reality. Powerful, isn't it? And there's more. <laughs> We are torn out of our own existence and set down in the midst of a holy history of God on earth. There God dealt with us, and there he still deals with us. Our needs and our sins in judgment and grace. For clarification, I'd want to use the word discipline, not judgment. Christians don't face judgment, but we do face discipline. Bonhoeffer was right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul wrote, now these things, speaking of the passage we're going to study today, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Church, what we'll read today is not a stale, mere history lesson, but rather it's a record of real events that happened as an example, that we would be instructed through them on what we're to do and not do. I pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to obey and trust. If you would, look with me starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. There he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ears to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. We might call it spiritual amnesia. Fallen human beings have an incredible capacity to forget. At the very first sign of difficulty, out in the desert, a mere three days after God miraculously parted the Red Sea, holding the waters that his people would pass through on dry ground, a mere three days later, his people seem to have forgotten about the the Passover lamb, about the plagues, about their deliverance out of Egypt, about walking through that sea on dry ground. It seems like they've just failed to remember a mere three days. They've reached this place in the wilderness called Mara, and the irony, of course, is palpable. Mara means bitter, but it's not only the water that's turning bitter there at Mara. The people themselves are bitter. It looked like an oasis, but that turned out to only be a mirage because the water wasn't drinkable. After three days in the desert, the Israelites have run out of everything they were able to lug with them. And so with parched lips and sore throats, instead of simply asking God, you've provided for us in the past You've shown yourself to be good and present and faithful. Would you please provide for us in the present? Instead of that simple request, they grumbled. To grumble is to murmur, to complain, to revile. It's like the toddler that is in the back seat and mom reaches back and hands a Tootsie Pop, a red one and he throws it back in the front and says, I want the green one. That's murmuring. The space between dancing and praising God on the shores of the Red Sea to the murmuring and grumbling and complaining and bickering at Myrrh is a span of a mere 72 hours. How much shorter is ours? we too complain, we too grumble. And think of what we have that they didn't have. We, we have the written word of God, they didn't. We have the cross and resurrection. They only had the events that anticipated it. We have thousands and thousands of years of recorded history of the faithfulness of God to his people. And they're just getting started. Yet how quickly we too forget. But despite their angry, arrogant grumbling, God was gloriously and wonderfully gracious. Moses at God's command threw in a log and God used it supernaturally to sweeten or purify this water and As they drank their fill and replenished their containers, God then, in verse 26, set the terms for how a relationship with Him was to work. He is their God, He acted first on their behalf. And they, in response, were to obey Him, to follow His commands, to do what He says. They're to listen and obey. And surely after another miraculous event in which God delivered them and gave them good, sweet water. Surely after God provided again, after he was gracious when they were anything but, surely they'd learn their lesson as they'd move on to the next place, right? I mean, how many times does he have to show them how wonderful and loving he is for them to get it? Surely this one's it. Well, verse 27 records as they moved ahead to the next spot. It says, Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. Elam was naturally the opposite of Marah. There was an abundance of water. There was far more than they could need. And it gives us this beautiful picture of enough springs of underground water welling up that each one of the tribes had their own big, huge water fountain, all that they could desire. And there were 70 palm trees, meaning every elder could gather with his people under those palm trees. The numbers, of course, represent completeness, fullness, abundance, they have all that they could possibly ever need. I imagine as they relaxed and drank and laughed, can you see the kids playing in the water? Can you see their relief? We've got everything we need here. And yet Elam wasn't the destination. They needed to press on to go ahead to another place. Vacations are sweet. Abundance is wonderful, precisely because most of life doesn't work that way. Most of life is toil. And so would they go from this place of abundance, having learned a lesson at Marah, or would something else occur? Would they complain and grumble, or would they trust and obey? Well, let's find out starting in chapter 16. They set out from Elam and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Can you imagine the warning sign? (laughs) Don't go in there. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So it's been a month and a half that they have been on this journey. Verse 2, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out in this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. The grumbling is escalating. The narrator's carefully showing us this isn't a mere repeat of what happened at Murrah. No, when people grumble, that grumble builds on the past grumble. The grumbling gets bigger and bigger and more and more intense. It hardens the heart. We see this because at Murah, they just grumbled to Moses But here we're told the whole congregation of the people grumbled. And this time they pulled in Aaron as well. What's even more shocking though, is they have the audacity to say, we would rather God have killed us back in Egypt than be out here in the wilderness and hungry. The juxtaposition between the mercy of God and the absolute madness of his people could not be more stark. Friends, when we feel sorry for ourselves, when we're in a time of some type of difficulty, when life's not going our way, be it small or huge, the great temptation we will face, one of them, is to look back and to misremember the way things used to be to look back before the present difficulty and think, ah, everything was better then. Why can't I just go back to then? That's what Israel did. Now for me, a meat pot sounds disgusting, but they were into that. So they look back on their slavery and they say, well, there was no slavery. We just had an abundance of food. Our lives were great. We had all we need forgetting that they were in bondage. Their amnesia is growing. When we face trial, difficulty, hardship, disappointment, it's easy to look backward and not think straight, not remember what it was like before God had intervened in our lives. It's only been 45 days, but for bitter complainers, life is always better somewhere else. The grass is always greener on the other side. If this text, brothers and sisters, is a mirror, if it's given by God to instruct us, then to be faithful to God, I must ask you, as you hold up that mirror, do you see your reflection? Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Christian, are you among those who quickly forget? Church, are we known for a joyful contentedness and confidence in God or for our complaint and contention? This is one of those passages where it just feels to me like all I need to do is read it for us to come under its weight. It's like prayer. Nobody goes around saying, I've got that one conquered. It doesn't take any work at all to feel conviction. And so I want to encourage you today, if you feel rebuked by this passage by the Lord, that you would... Yes indeed see that sin but pass through the conviction into the glorious room of the graciousness of God don't stand under the weight of the conviction too long because God's not punishing you pass through his good discipline you received today into the room you live in, the room of the graciousness of God. And watch this graciousness as we read on and see how God responded to their escalating complaint. Verse four, then the the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, they will prepare what they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because as you heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you In the evening, meat to eat, and in the morning, bread to the full. Because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. As soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Can you imagine the love of God? That after everything he's done, When there's just a little hint of difficulty, they complain and murmur and grumble and moan and throw their Tootsie Pops. And God's response is to shower love and provision again? It's incredible. Christian, you are loved by God with a love that is inexhaustible. And it is a love that has absolutely nothing to do with your contribution to it. It is a love simply because God chose to love you. He chose to set his affection upon you despite your moral unloveliness. And it is a treasure trove from which God never comes up empty There's always more love. Isn't that amazing? Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered. No, that's not where I am, is it? Where was I? I got caught up in my own preaching. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was in the face of the wilderness a fine flint-like, flake-like, finest frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they didn't know what it is. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you, As much as he can eat, you shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much has nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. It bred worms and stink, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. The point was God's testing them, God's giving him commands, and God's providing for them every day. Their job was to receive the grace for that day, the provision that God had. He did not give them grace today for tomorrow. He gave them for today, that's all they needed. And yet they kept trying to hoard it. And in so doing, they ruined that provision. How convicting. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. They laid aside until the morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath. To the Lord, today you will not find it in the field. Six days you will gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain, each of you, in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white. The taste of it like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generation so that when you see the bread with which I feed you in the wilderness and when I brought you out of the land of Egypt... Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they they ate the manna to the border of the land of Canaan. An (coughs) omer is a tenth part of an ephah. That's my life verse, verse 36. There in the wilderness, there's a humble, no, there's a hostile crowd. There's a hungry, hostile crowd. And yet God responds to the bitter complaints of his people with still more grace, still more mercy, still more love, still more provision. is absolutely incredible god did so verse 4 tells us in part to test them to test them now ironically they had been testing god too they tested god by quarreling over the bitter waters at murrah they tested god by grumbling in the wilderness when they felt hungry they tested him by disobeying his commandments to simply receive the grace for today and not gather, try to gather and hoard for tomorrow. They tested God by going and searching on the Sabbath instead of just resting. They tested him, as we'll see in a moment, by bickering and murmuring and complaining at their next stop at Mirabah. Beloved, our testing of God is always wrong. Because God's in charge. And because God has nothing to be tried or refined. He needs in no way, shape, or form to be proved or improved. This is why later in the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses would write, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's why Jesus, when he was out in the wilderness for 40 days, fasting, preparing for his earthly ministry, and he was hungry. And Satan came and tempted him, saying, I'll turn these stones into bread. Jesus said, you you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Israel failed. Jesus, the better Israel, did what they couldn't do. He didn't complain. He trusted. He obeyed. To quarrel with God, brothers and sisters, is to disobey his commands. To hide yourself from his past provisions and distrust that he would provide in the present. It's to forget his graciousness. It's to demand that he somehow owes us and must do things our way on our time. These are among the most egregious, arrogant sins to test God ought never happen. And yet, God's testing of us is entirely different. You see, God gives us commands to, to protect us, to direct us, to provide for us, to hedge around us what's good and right, to, as we obey, to put on display to the world a people who are no better than anyone else and yet they have his love and therefore they're learning to love him back and they display the beauty of life lived for God. And his commands, as they test us, they expose the remaining sin in our hearts. God's leading us in our own wildernesses. Every trial, every pain, every taste of bitter water, every suffering Christian you will ever face first passes through the hand of God. The only difficulties we ever encounter are the ones that God brings into our lives That the sin within might be removed by learning not to trust ourselves and rely on ourselves and get spiritually arrogant and big-headed, but instead to trust and obey. There's an old song that says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. God graciously brings us through difficulty that we might see how prone we are to forget and yet how gracious and loving He is. In so doing, the Lord tests. He grows. He strengthens our endurance, our holiness, our confidence in Him. That is the wildernesses are for our good. Deuteronomy 8 says that very thing. Deuteronomy 8 says, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Every difficulty is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to choose. Will I grumble and complain Or will I see this as an opportunity to trust God, to obey Him, to realize He's giving me another chance, that this time I might not do that, but instead be refined and grow and see His gracious provision when He brings it? Church, we test God in arrogance while He tests us. In grace. We test him out of a sense of entitlement. He tests us for our refinement. And through every test, we face exactly the same struggle the Israelites faced. I really don't think it's more complicated than this. When our expectations are not being met, when we face difficulty, suffering, disappointment, and pain, will we trust and obey or will we complain and grumble? Those are the only two choices. When the diagnosis is not hopeful, when the bank account is empty, when the grade is less than you expected, when the quote unquote friends don't call anymore, when your children just aren't listening and your boss is never satisfied, when the airbrushed world of Instagram exposes your insecurity and when you look around and every Christian has it better than you will you grumble and complain or will you trust and obey? Every suffering is an opportunity to choose that fork in the road. If that feels like an impossible choice to you, then I think mainly I'd wanna say, I get it. I I, I speak as a fellow struggler, as one who has my own case of spiritual amnesia. It's incredible to me how at 10 a.m. we can say with all sincerity, God, as I embark on this day, I trust you, I wanna obey you, I wanna follow you. And by noon, to already be grumbling. So is there an actual way forward? I mean, if Israel is moving from here to here to here to here to here, and they're doing the same thing, only it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse, why would we be any different? Why even bother having this message. I mean, are we destined to an escalation of grumbling? There are days that it feels like it. And yet there is a way out. There is a way actually to choose that correct fork in the road. We find it in the oddest of places in this next text. Look with me at chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. God, in His love, is giving them another test. The Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock. Water will come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah in Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? In this passage, the quarreling has reached its crescendo. It's the loudest moment. When the Israelites reached that camp, there was yet again no water. As I said, in love, God's giving them another choice, another opportunity. Are they growing? Are they developing? Are they becoming more holy? Will they choose to trust his past provisions, guarantee he'll take care of us in the present? No, they forgot. So aggressive was their rebellion, Moses was afraid they might kill him. And as Moses interceded, the Lord this time upped his response. What we're given in this passage isn't a mere repeat of past provision. We're given something far more. It's there in verses 5 and 6. Israel has been putting God on trial in the wilderness. With all their grumblings and entitlements, they're making the claim that he isn't good, that he won't take care of them, that he somehow has evil in mind for them. And so Moses summons a courtroom drama. And everything is arranged just right. On the one side are the people of Israel, the grumblers, the distrusters, the complainers, the ones calling into question the character of God. And on the other side is God. God puts himself there. There on the rock of Horeb, verse 6 says, which, not coincidentally, this is the same place where Moses had seen the burning bush. So Israel is here. God is there. And then the choreography is so important. Can you hear the dun dun Courts in session. Between the two, Moses is to pass with some of the elders and with that big stick symbolizing the authority and power and judgment of God. Moses is to take that stick and use it in such a way that Moses is acting as the judge of this trial. Now, it's obvious to us, of course, that Israel over here is guilty. And that God is guiltless. And that they're the complainers. And God is the one gracious. They deserved condemnation and God vindication. And yet, notice what happens in the story. God tells Moses, take that stick and strike the rock from which water will flow an endless supply of refreshment. Now, what in the world is up with that? Well, don't miss this. Where's God in the story? Israel's here, the rock is here, and God is on the rock. And so, the story's very carefully telling us that when Moses struck the rock, Moses struck God. The Lord directed Moses with these words essentially, publicly bring down the rod of judgment on me. You see, God took the judgment his people deserved that day. God bears the brunt of the striking that salvation and refreshment and blessing and replenishment might flow. Now, if you think that's a stretch, some sort of uh, preacher's liberty. Then take Paul's word for it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes of this very story and he says, the rock was Christ. So when God said God is standing at the rock there at Horeb, who was it? Well, it was Jesus. Jesus took the judgment. This, of course, is no strange message to us. Stand with me at the foot of Calvary. Look up at the cross. There is the Son of God being struck not for mere water in the desert, but for salvation that goes for eternity. Jesus bore the brunt of the judgment of God that we might, again speaking of this story in John 6, John says, have an endless spring of refreshment welling up within us, of which he meant the Spirit. How do we get out of our habit of grumbling? It is not by saying, "Dad, gummit, I'm not going to do it today." It's by looking to Christ, who took the judgment we deserve. Rose again, ascended to heaven, sent his spirit who lives within. It's as we start each day, reading God's word, rehearsing what he's done for us, being thankful for what really matters. And then every day knowing whatever comes has first passed through the hand of God and is for our good. That we might become more like Christ as he graciously provides for us. Our rock forever. Father, we ask you in your grace to use this hard message for your glory and our good. We confess a habit of grumbling, complaining, entitlement. And we pray that today would be a defining point at which we begin to make the turn toward trusting and obeying.